Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Today, we are speaking with Tehila Friedman, a former member of Knesset, Israel's parliament. I was first introduced to Tehila Friedman a few months back in school, actually. As regular listeners will know by now, my love and passion is Nice Jewish Girls. But I also have a small side gig as an undergraduate student at the University of Chicago. Tahila Friedman came to speak at my school with my favorite professor, actually, in this panel about religion and Israeli politics. And she said something at this lecture that has not left my mind since then. You see, Tahila Friedman comes from this really specific background a religious Zionist, an Orthodox Jew, and an Israeli, a feminist. Her experiences are distinct and often painted as at odds with one another. Too orthodox for feminism, too progressive for orthodoxy, too Zionist for progressivism. Because of that, women like Tehila are so often misunderstood, even by other Jewish people from different backgrounds. At this panel, she explained that often she feels that she has more in common with other religious Muslim women than non-religious Jewish women and that this shared experience of empowerment through religious observance is so strong that it can unite across identities. That maybe this unity can be a powerful political tool for peace. Immediately, I knew I wanted to speak to Tehila, that she would be the perfect person to sit down with that nice Jewish girls. I wanted to ask her what it's like to have this often conflicting identity, especially in the Knesset, a political body already fraught with conflict as it is. I wanted to ask her about this idea of unity and understanding across religious and ethnic identities. I am so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Tahila Friedman is a program director for Shacharit, a think tank promoting a new social covenant in Israel. She just finished up her term as a member of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Tahila was a research fellow of the Kagod Research Center at Shalom Hartman Institute, where she also headed the Amiyut Research Group, where she worked to get diaspora studies into the Israeli middle and high school curricula. She is the immediate past chair of Ne'amane Torah Avodah, a modern Orthodox movement promoting pluralism and democracy, as well as a board member of the Yerushalmit Movement, a nonprofit for pluralistic Jerusalem. She was a fellow in the Mandel Leadership Institute and the director of the Israel Office of the Jewish Federation of Central New Jersey a grant officer at the Rothschild Foundation, and an advisor to Natan Sharansky. Tahila Friedman, it's an honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, it is a rainy day here in Florida, but you're over in Israel. How's everything there? <laughs> Not rainy. You know, Israel summer. <laughs> <laughs> Though, Jerusalem is a bit chilly. A bit chilly, yeah. It's definitely not chilly in Florida, but... <laughs> Um, just to get right into it, can you tell us a bit about your background as a Jewish woman? What was the religious community like where you grew up? And what was your experience with Judaism as, as a child? So I grew up in a place called Kiryat Ono. It's in the center of Israel, not far from Tel Aviv. Um, because my mom is a history professor in Barilan University. So Kiryat Ono is like a, it's a boring suburb of Tel Aviv near Barilan. At the age of 18, I moved to Jerusalem I came to learn in a midrasha. Midrasha is like a yeshiva for girls. It was pretty new back then. The whole phenomena of Orthodox women going to learn higher, 
حیات وغستادیز It wasn't common in my high school uh, girls were not allowed uh, to learn Talmud uh, and after high school so I went to, to do that after that national service university law school and then again I spent another year of, of Jewish studies and then you know I started my career so in terms of background that's a background that's incredible so you had mentioned that you This was a, a kind of a new thing where women were going to study um, Talmud and going to study after they graduated religion. Did you face any backlash from your community? Was it a hard transition or was it more embracing? Mm, first, I think my parents were like, why do you need that? Like, what's, uh, you know, what's the point? Why it's so important for you? Uh, it's not like I didn't get a serious Jewish um You know education, but I wanted to to do something more, and I wanted to do something that mainly boys did back till then, so my parents it wasn't a backlash, it was uh, more of a lack of understanding i think and uh, but people around me, I think my boys' friends, they were like. You want to be a man, you want to be well feeling, you want to, you know, all kind of those teasing. Mm-hmm. Today it sounds even weird, but it was in a way threatening for them. Yeah. It was like getting in the, to their area, though most of them, they were not such a, you know, big in learning. It wasn't their passion. <laughs> I think some of them were like, if you don't have to. And you don't have to why do you prefer to do that so yeah it was yeah. some somewhere between like of understanding and a backlash that makes sense yeah and so then you eventually went into politics how did you make that change from studying Talmud to then working <laughs> in and finding well, that balance <laughs> There were uh, 20 years uh, in the middle. Um, yeah but, um, I, so I started in, in learning in law school it was a clear for me that I'm not going to be a lawyer. Uh, I wanted to work in some kind of non-profit, you know, civic rights organizations for something. So that was a starting point. And then when I finished law school, I was writing for a year in newspapers. I had a column, a weekly column in two newspapers. And then I got an offer uh, uh, to come to work for Nathan Sharansky. He was back. back then Minister for Diaspora Affairs. And it was funny, he was looking for someone to write his speeches and articles. I got there because he needs someone who knows how to write. Yeah. Very fast, I become his advisor, and I got to learn about Israel-Diaspora relations and things like that. I was the, whole, the only Sabra in the chamber. The, all the rest were mm. either Russian speakers or English speaking speakers. So it was interesting. Yeah. Anyhow, and then we moved to the state. I was working for the ADL uh, for a short term, mm-hmm. then came back home working as a liaison of one of the Jewish federations. And at that time, I also started to, to become a social activist. Now, I had my day job in, in Jewish philanthropy, actually. Mm-hmm. As my job, I become more and more involved socially and, Social activism is already very close to politics. Yeah. And during all those years, I was always writing. 
it could be Facebook, it could be uh, articles in newspapers. I was always writing. I think I'm, I'm thinking by writing. <laughs> and one day I just got a phone call from Yair Lapid, who's now, you know, a known uh, political yeah. figure in Israel. I got a, I, I seriously, I got a phone call saying, hi, that's Yair Lapid. I read your article on Makorisha newspaper. Let's get together. I want to get to know you. After a year of back and forth, you know, we met each other a few times and things like that. I participated in, in public dialogue with him, all kind of things. He told me, would you be interested in joining my list to the Knesset? And that was a, whoa, okay. Yeah. It took me a long time to make the decision. Although I was already so, so, so involved socially, and I was also getting a lot of dirt and violence as, a, you know, a Orthodox woman taking France in social debates and disputes around the place of women, place of Judaism, things like that. So it wasn't like I was afraid, but to move from social activism which is something pretty pure to politics, which, which is very unpure. <laughs> that was a hard decision. Yeah. And I remember when, when I got to the Knesset, one of my rabbis called and said, now that I can understand what a good, nice Jewish girl like you are going to do there, but good luck with that. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so yes, it was a big decision. I'm like the typecast of politician. You know, I speak softly, I speak a complicated way. So it wasn't obvious, but it was um, something that I don't regret. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is something so powerful about that, that you're not the typecast, like you'd said, and you do it and you have both of these incredible identities. You have your experience growing up as a religious woman and you have your experience as a woman in politics. And those two things are both pieces of your identity that come together and inform each other. And, and I, I want to talk about that a bit more. Um, what was your experience like in the Knesset as a woman? I know that you were um, on a list with Yair Lapid, which he typically tends to be a bit more secular. How did you reconcile that with your religious beliefs? How did your politics and religion come in conversation in your time in the Knesset? It's a long story. I'm not going to get into it, but just to make it accurate, I didn't stay in his list. I moved to another one. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, it actually played a great role. Both facts that first, that I'm a woman and second, that I'm from, that I'm religious. Because first I had quite a few very noisy disputes with the ultra-Orthodox uh, Knesset members. For example, around during the Corona, when we had lockdown, some of the ultra-Orthodox communities just refused to, to close the schools. And they opened the schools uh, despite of the fact it was, it was forbidden legally. Now, mm. the, there is a midrash. I, I'll, I'll, I need to explain yeah, it. Yeah, there, there, okay, there is a midrash saying that the Torah can function as something that brings life. But it can also function sometimes as something that brings death. Um, and, and I found myself in the Knesset shouting, your Torah is bringing death. Oh my goodness. Now we both know. So 
we both know what I'm referring to. We both knew what I'm quoting, but no one around us, I mean, secular members of the Knesset didn't have a clue what I'm talking about. So, but the fact that I'm, I'm using a religious language, it wasn't that, you know, liberal language versus religious language, like usually those conversations are done. It was both of us spoke religious language. We interpreted the same Torah in the very opposite ways. It didn't make me very popular. I mean, they hated me. So the Orthodox uh, members of the Knesset, because I was, you know, in their, in their backyard saying, well, it's mine as much as it's yours. Mm-hmm. So it really played a great role. So that's one example. But but all over, another example, okay, a mikvaot, a ritual bath. There was a whole discussion around it during the corona because of health reasons. Is that insecure? Isn't it secure? So in a, in a very weird way, so the, the thing was how... How we make sure that religious women can go to the ritual bath, even though it's not it's not Corona, you know, fine. Yeah. And I was like, "Are you kidding? The, the whole point of Corona rules is protect my life. So if you want to be for me as a religious woman, you are not supposed to help me go around the rules." You're supposed to make the mikveh, the ritual bath, very, very secure. That's the thing. Yeah. And they couldn't say, well, you don't understand. You don't know what I'm talking about. It's like, okay, I'm using that. I'm going there. Yeah. So the fact that I was both a woman and a religious and feminist um, played a great role in, you know, in what I did. It's not the only thing that I, I dealt with, but when it came to those issues, this position was very, um, very special, I think. Being religious, being a woman and being a feminist are three identities that I think a lot of young women are sharing with you. A lot of young women in the diaspora and in Israel. Um, but I don't think it gets a lot of attention and recognition in the Jewish world and in the non-Jewish world alike. Um, how is that beginning to change, especially in Israeli society? Were there female mentors before you, like Ruth Calderon, other people who had similar um, perspectives that you now share? And are there young women coming after you that you're working with to kind of empower in the same way? You know, today, really today, I met a young Haredi woman, ultra-Orthodox woman from Beitar. And she came to me and she said, you know, I was following you when you were in the Knesset. And it was such a hope for me to see that there can be halachic woman who is a feminist, who is a Knesset member. And she gave me a hug and I was in tears, oh. really. She, she's young. She's, yeah. she's 20 something. And she's coming from a much more conservative, small c, conservative words than me. And the fact it was so, um, so significant for her. Yeah. So I felt, well, there was a reason for me to be there. Um, isn't it, it, look, it's becoming more and more common. I think 10 years ago, I was getting much more the, you can't be both. 
you know, it's either being feminist or being orthodox. You can't be both. And, and it's so tiring because I'm like, okay, so I, I, nice to meet you. That's, that's who I am. Like, what do you mean by you can't be? <laughs> it came from both, <laughs> it came from both sides, you know, it can, it's like from the secular side, it was, well, feminism is part of being progressive. And if you're a feminist, you can't be, you know, firm. Yeah. Uh, you are not really feminist. And from the orthodox side, it was, you are not really religious. And I'm like, well, mm. I'm really both. I'm not the only one. I mean, that, you know, tons like me. So Absolutely. now it's more known. And it's funny. We, there, there was a huge Facebook group. And the name was, I'll translate it. I'm a religious feminist and I have no sense of humor. <laughs> it was actually a very funny yeah. <laughs> group. But, but, but the whole point was, you know, every time they're making sexist, every sexist thing that someone says, say, well, it's only a joke. Why can't you have a humor? So we called it, I'm a feminist. I'm religious feminist. I have no sense of humor. And in the, and since it's so long, so there was a shortcut. We, we called it Fadla Hushiot. Ani feministi datia ve'enli hushumor. So altogether, it's come Fadla Hushiot. So the fact it become one word uh, made it into identity. I could say, yeah, I am you know, part of this group. I'm that thing. So it was easier for people to understand somehow um, since it had a word defining it. So, okay, I got it. That's what you are. Um, so so it's, all, it's becoming almost a stream, you know, the, the orthodox, the conservatives, the mm-hmm. reforms, the, those feminist women. Okay, fine. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but uh, so, so I think it's becoming more known, more understandable. Seems like a sense of community that's forming. That's really wonderful to see. Um, and it reminds me a lot of something that you have spoken about, actually, a bit of a backstory. I am a student at the University of Chicago. And how I first heard you speak was a couple of months back, you'd given a lecture for the Divinity School with my professor, actually. You mentioned a, a kind of story toward the end about how sometimes you feel like you have more in common with um, your Arab neighbors who are religious Orthodox uh, Muslim women than you do with the secular Jewish women in Israel. I thought that was a really, really interesting story. And I, I want to talk a bit about that. Why is that? What What is that kind of sense of common ground that you have with other women who are religious just like you, just practicing a different faith? One short story, I think, uh, would be a nice example. One time uh, we set a meeting in, in her room. We wanted to talk about birth cancer um, checking, the age, you know, from what age the, the country would sponsor it. There was something around birth cancer. Uh, but when I came in, she was praying. She was using her prayer rug. Now, since it was so beautiful, I told my assistant, you know what? You go out, I would I would catch a minha. <laughs> I would I would also pray. So 
she was there on her prayer rug. I was in the other side of the room, davening mincha. And there was, there was a holy moment there, you know, it, when her small chamber became like bet filah lechol amim, like, like, like a place of praying. It was really beautiful. And then we sat down and we spoke about, you know, breast cancer and, and checking. Uh, so now why? So that's one thing we had in common. We were people who's praying. That's, that's a very strong thing to have in common. Yeah. The second, the second thing I think is coming from um, a conservative society means that the balance of, of we both had big families. I think what mine is bigger. I have five kids. I think she has less. I don't remember. Uh, but the place of family. Uh, the weight of family in life. And the society, the community around us. I remember her as there was um, something around LGBT rights. I can't remember what was it, was it exactly, but something. And I saw her and her party. They were all under a lot of pressure. Um, about this voting, they could not support it because the community was so strongly against it. And I saw her trying to to explain to other Knesset members why they can't support. And I came near her and, and she said, it's a horrible day. And I said, well, I, I understand you so much. I'm coming from the same kind of society, for, of community. I, it was easy for me to understand what kind of pressure that, you know, they face. Because I just, you know, I know it firsthand. So, so I might be in different place in my communities, you know, um, I think in different place. But 10 years ago, I would be in exactly the same place she was in. So... So yes, there are things we, we have in common, for sure. And, and as women, it's even more because, you know, praying and conservative community, that's also true for men. But, you know, even the basic fact, we both cover our head. Okay, she wore hijab, I wore a hat. You know, in the Knesset, we were weird or unique or whatever you couldn't miss it that we have something on yeah, our head and she she was wearing very modest uh, she she was more uh, serious in being modest than me but we both are fine i think um so all those things and and just our, our life is not so different than each other that's really an incredible story and i think there's so much value in that um, and like you'd said, because you're women, you have this intersection in your identity that you can further see each other. And what what value do you think can come in this this idea of understanding the mutual commonalities in each other? Do you think that if we're able to see more pieces like that, there's more of a, a push toward peace? Do you think that's a more powerful thing than we recognize? Look, I don't want to simplify it because last month when Israel had riots, 
within Israel, not, you know, in the territories, in, in, in Loden and in Akko. So I called her and she didn't answer and she didn't call back. And I, I don't know if she just, you know, missed my call. It might happen or it was more than that. So I want I don't, I don't want to simplify it. It is the great differences and the national tension is, is hard. But the fact we have um, things in common and there is something, you know, there is understanding, there is love there. I guess it's softening in a way the hardness of, of the national gap. It, it, it's enabling us to balance it or to understand that there are times that we're in the same side and there are times that we're in two, you know, two sides of the, of the situation. And that's okay. Sometimes we're in the same camp and sometimes we're not. It's not a solution for anything, but it's softening. And softening is, is something. I think that's something in the diaspora we don't always see about Israeli society. I think we often don't understand the role that this, I guess, because we, we growing up in the U.S., we grew up as a minority. We're not the predominant, I guess, part of society. Um, but it seems like you've done a lot of work trying to understand the diaspora, probably more work than most people in the diaspora have done to understand Israeli society. Um, and kind of starting with Natan Shansky and now your role at Hartman, um, previously with diaspora studies, why do you think that there's value in understanding the Jewish communities that are outside of Israel? What is diaspora studies um, and where is it going? I think it, the way my parents brought me up, the Jews are my family. Mm-hmm. That like Jews are family of each other. That, that's the basic thing that it means to be a Jew is to be part of the Jewish people. And for me, that's, you know, the fact that we in Israel, so many times when we say we, we think we Israelis, it's on one hand natural. On the other hand, it's like, what kind of Jews are we if it's only we Israelis? Because it has to be also we the Jewish people. That's such a big part of being Jewish. So for me, it's coming from the way I understand being Jewish. That's why it's so important for me. And also, I think that being a feminist, orthodox feminist, I'm very grateful for the mothers of the, this movement. And, and it, it's actually coming from the state. And it's one example of this creation of combination between liberal values and Jewish values. And I think we imported it in a way. And I think in Israel today, in the, at least in the Orthodox community, we took it forward more than in, in Orthodox communities in the state. And the reason for that, I think it has to do with the famous slippery slope, because in Israel, what's down there in the slippery slope? What's the worst case scenario? you wouldn't be observant. Uh, but in the state, down there, in the slippery slope, people are afraid of, of a simulation. So that's why I think people here 
feel less more secure in 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 doing in doing change or things like that in, within the orthodox community mm-hmm. that that can be one explanation there's other explanation also mm-hmm. i think israel is is less a formalic a society so the question what makes someone a rabbi for example so i think in america you need to be ordained in order to be a rabbi yeah in israel you need people to ask you a lot of questions if people respect your knowledge enough to ask you to a uh, uh, questions and ask you to make a psak for them so you're a rabbi it doesn't matter if you're ordained or not i mean most shuls here don't have official community rabbi so it's not it, it we just so it's more about learning i mean the, the position is more is more about you know your 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 learning your your knowledge uh, and it's enable women to take stronger positions because it's less the you know the being a cantor being a whatever it's more about okay you can be a leader because you gain knowledge and it seems like with your time in the Knesset because you stood at this precipice of identity you had your role as an orthodox woman and your role in, in parliament in the Knesset being a kind of a voice for both communities that this intersection of liberal values and religious values has always been a crux of your career and could probably continue to be in your time at Hartman, if I'm correct. I guess it will always be because that's just who I am. Yeah. I'm very busy in, in, in thinking in what way this um, hybrid identity um, can be implemented in more fields. Like, because in Israel today, I think that's our greatest challenge. How we hold two or more opposite things together in order to to overgap the, the, like, the differences between communities in Israel. Okay, because it's so, the, the threat for Israel, the biggest threat for Israel is is internal internal fight internal you know not civil war oh, god forbid but but the lake of social cohesiveness that's really a danger you know we've been through four elections during the last two years the instability is is amazing okay that the, like we failed in holding a government because of this this internal tension so it's not like you know social cohesiveness nice to have no it's essential we can't function without it yeah so the ability to say it's not either or i can be both all kind of things okay it's not either or liberal versus conservative uh, observant versus non-observant, even Jews versus Arabs. Like, how can we, how can we create um, a center that holds more than one value? Okay, that is that is a combination, and I think religious feminism is a good example, but it can't be the only one. How I want this podcast. 
to to be to function is a resource for everyone, especially young girls, but for everyone to feel like they have access to female mentors um, that they might never get a chance to meet or get a chance to speak to. It seems like for for you, you're really a leader in this idea of not having to pick, not having to isolate pieces of your identity and fit them into boxes where they have been for history, but instead moving into the future, having the ability to, to take up as much space as you need to, to have the complete picture of your identity in progress. What's the advice that you'd want to give to women listening to this who are in similar situations to you or finding themselves at this place where they have to choose? What, what would you want them to know? What would you want them to, to learn from you? I think we're thinking about flexibility as something weak, as not being strong enough in your identity, in your place. There are times in life when you need to choose either you are a daughter or you are a mother. Okay, I have a friend now. Her mother is, is, is getting old. Almost every day when she go out from her, her work, she need to choose, is she going to visit her mom or is she going to go home to be with her kids? So it's kind of choosing, okay? Either you are a daughter or you are a mother. Is that really choosing? No. It's a certain time in life that her mother needs her more. So she balances it now in that way. And next year, God willing, she'll balance it differently. It's not either or. Even there were years in my life that I was more a mother, or at least I, I tried to be more a mother than a professional. And there are years in my life that I'm the opposite. That sometimes times in day or times in the week, if we can understand that there is internal flexibility and, and with all those you know, parts of our identity. And it doesn't mean that we are not something. No, it means that right now I'm, I give more place to, you know, this part. And tomorrow it will be different. And it's okay. It's really, that's how life is. And it's not a compromise. It's a richness. Uh, and and I, I, I think... That's a whole, you know, that's all the Torah on one leg. Like, it's not compromise. It's a richness. Absolutely. And Tehila, it's been such an honor to speak with you and to have this opportunity to hear your perspective, your experience. Um, You're an incredible inspiration for so many people. And I really am so thankful that you were here to join us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This was a really interesting podcast to record because I feel like I got this really raw picture of Israeli society, which is so different from what I've experienced in the United States. Here Tehillah stood, this Orthodox Jew, this feminist, this progressive, with footing in so many different identities. I loved picturing her on the floor of the Knesset, arguing about Torah with another Orthodox Jew as a means of political commentary. Just grappling with the significance of that image is incredible. A woman who has studied Torah so extensively, but she can use it to defend the people she represents. A woman with this political influence. A woman in both of these spaces at once. Tehillah is setting the groundwork for a new wave of Israeli politics, yes, 
but also a new wave of religious feminism. For so long, religious women, Jewish women, have been left out of the conversation of feminism. Orthodoxy doesn't always fit neatly into feminist spaces, and feminism doesn't always fit neatly into orthodox spaces. But Tehillah and women like her reject this division. They study Torah and politics. They fight for religious recognition and gender equality. And there's something about that I can't get off my mind. There is so much hope there. Tehillah Friedman is so much more than a nice Jewish girl. She is a brave leader who embraces all of the pieces of her identity in harmony. And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I would love, love, love to hear your feedback and suggestions for other Nice Jewish Girls to host on this pod. Email us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. And join us next week when we'll be speaking with Eve Barlow, renowned music journalist, Twitter provocateur, and impassioned and vocal Zionist. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rifki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Dassey. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. I want to shout out a weekly podcast you might love, called This Week Unpacked. In 15-minute episodes, my colleagues Avi and Sarah explore a relevant and important topic in Jewish and Israeli news. Check it out and let me know what you think. And follow Unpacked at all of the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.